The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. I invite you, if you would, to turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2. Gospel of Luke, chapter 2. This morning we'll look to verses 39 through 52. Here's what Luke writes. He says, And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom. And the favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to the custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him in the temple were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth, to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. That's the word of the Lord for us this morning. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, you are truly majestic and glorious. You are indeed the God of all gods, second person of the Trinity, who left heaven and came here to earth, coming near to us, taking on human flesh to redeem us, to do for us what we could never do for ourselves by our religious activity or by our good works. you came to do for us in our place. And yet in doing that, Lord, you took on full humanity that you might be able to identify with us in every single way and die also as a man shedding his blood for men. Or the mysteries of your divine nature are beyond the stretch of our human faculties to fully grasp. And so, this morning, as we begin to sort of delve into this text, which takes us there, we pray that by your Spirit, you would enliven our minds to understand. That you would cause us to have deeper knowledge and understanding of who you are and what you've come to do. The end result would be, Lord, not that we would just know more about you, but that we would love you with all of our hearts, souls, minds, and strengths that our whole lives may be submitted to you in all things. 
Jesus, do your work in us as we think about you, as we read from your word. We pray in your holy name. Amen. title of this morning's message is I thought you had him every parent probably understands that issue I couldn't think of anything better so that's all I could come up with bear with me if you would the, the narrative of the story that Luke provides for us this morning is relatively simple to understand and very easy for every parent to relate to on its surface and so the narrative doesn't require a whole lot of pastoral effort to help you understand. But what I want you to understand is behind the narrative that there's a reason that God has included this text in the canon of Scripture. There is a reason why Luke, the, the gospel writer, chose to include this story that in some ways is humorous in the text for us to think about and to consider. And I believe it's because it gives us some early insight into the nature of Christ that he is both at one and the same time fully human and also fully divine. It is a bedrock of our Christian theology and the doctrine of the incarnation of Christ to understand that Jesus, the one born in Bethlehem, the one whose birth we just celebrated during the Christmas season, is both one and the same time divine. He is God of all gods in human flesh, but he is also at the same time fully human. This is the doctrine of the nature of Christ, and it has been sort of developed throughout the history of the early church. If you were to sort of go back and study your church history, you would find that the church uh, in its infancy didn't have a full and robust understanding of the nature of Christ, that, that the doctrine of who Christ is and his nature sort of developed over the early centuries of the church. And it developed because people challenged the truths of Scripture. And so what happened is over time, uh, groups came together to sort of think about, reflect on the text of Scripture, and develop sort of statements reflecting the true nature of Christ. One such statement that's still very popular today is the Westminster Confession of Faith. Maybe you've heard it if you perhaps grew up in a Presbyterian church or something like that. You may have studied the Westminster Confession or maybe you even recited it as a part of worship. But in one section of the Westminster Confession that deals with the nature of Christ, it says this about who Christ is and the issue that which we will address this morning. It says this, the Son of God, the second person in the Trinity, being very and eternal God of one substance and equal with the Father, did, when the fullness of time was come, take upon him man's nature, with all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof, yet without sin, being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary, of her substance, so that two whole perfect and distinct natures, the Godhead and the manhood, were inseparably joined together in one person without conversion, composition, or confusion. And you're saying, I'm already confused. What person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man? Now that's a lot of words and multiple sentences to try and explain or to put into words what it means to say that Christ is both at one and the same time fully human and also fully God. 
the early church, as I said, wrestled with these things and trying to understand them. And the way that it normally sort of developed throughout the history of the church, by the way, this is just a little aside for your, just to tuck away in the back of your minds, is what would happen is as the church would begin to teach uh, the words of Christ and the teachings of Christ and begin to teach about who he was and what he had come to do, people would rise up often from within the church and would begin to, to teach false doctrines about who Christ is. And they would begin to teach heretical things and spread them throughout the uh, the, the congregations and and so what would happen is the church fathers and the pastors would have to come together and begin to think through and and reflect on what they knew of the scriptures and and begin to re, re- refute if you will these heresies that would arise and provide a, a biblical correction to what was being taught by folks who were coming up with novel things and so as I mentioned they would often convene a council to sort of resolve these difficult theological issues and to respond to heresy. You can read all about that in any church history book. But when it comes to the, the nature of Christ, there were some very clear heresies that popped up in the early centuries of the church. Maybe you've heard of some of these. Maybe you haven't. Maybe one day you'll be on jeopardy and you'll need to know this information. And so you should listen. In the first century, there was a, a thing called docetism. Docetism. That, that basically was a heresy that rose up within the church that taught that Jesus only appeared to be human. That he, he, he was really divine, but he wasn't really human. He just appeared to people to be human. But he wasn't fully human, he was fully divine. In the second century, you had a, another group of people called the Ebionites, and, and, and they sort of rallied around this, this doctrine that said that, that, no, no, it's not like what the Docetists say. Jesus was really a man. He was just born a man, and he became divine when he received the Holy Spirit at his baptism. And so prior to his baptism, he was just a man. At his baptism, he receives the Holy Spirit and takes on some form of divinity on top of his humanity. And if you were to go 100 years later into the 4th century, you would run into a group called the Arians. And the Arians taught that Jesus was a, uh, a created being, that he hasn't been, uh, that he isn't pre-existent, that he isn't God of all gods from all eternity past, the second person of the Trinity, that he was a created being, that, that there was some level of divinity to him, but he wasn't God human flesh. Also in the fourth century, there's a group called the Apollinarians. They taught Apollinarianism, which simply was another one of these heresies that taught that, that Jesus had a, a human body, but in place of a human mind was something called the divine logos. So he was sort of human in the sense that he had a human body. He just didn't have a brain like you have. He had something else in its place, kind of like a divine logos that was unique to him and different from you. Then a hundred years later, the Eutychians, uh, following a man named Eutychus, also taught something sort of strange in relation to the nature of Christ. They, they taught that, that, that there was a, they sort of denied that there was a distinction between his two natures, his humanity and his deity. They taught that, that those two natures in Christ sort of came together and blended and created a third type of nature that was altogether unique to Christ. And so you can see from these different heresies, what happens is, in one way or another, they short the biblical teaching on who Christ is. They either short out his, his divinity in order to enhance his humanity, or they sell short his humanity in order to enhance his deity, or in the case of the last one, they create something altogether different that isn't one or the other. 
And, and so these things have risen up throughout the history of the church. That was just in the first five centuries. There were others that have gone around, and there's still ones that pop up today. If you were to talk about the people that you know, and just ask them, who do you think Jesus is? What do you know about his nature? Was he God or was he man? You would get all sorts of, of unbelievable things that people believe about who Christ is. And I think it would be really cool if, like, throughout the rest of the history of the church, we kept, like, people's names associated with their heresies, right? Like, Apollinarius and Eutychus and Arius. I mean, imagine that if every time somebody came up with a, you know, a false teaching on the nature of Christ and people believed it, it just stuck with their name, you know, forever in history. You can imagine people a hundred years from now, you know, looking back and, and, and talking about uh, some woman named uh, Audrey who came up with this, this, this doctrine that uh, uh, after reading the um, unclassified uh, uh, documents that the government put out on UFOs that, that Jesus was really a, an alien who seated himself in a human body and, and, uh, and went about looking like a person, you know, kind of like the first Men in Black movie. And, and, and everybody believed her. She put that out on the internet, a bastion of all truth, and, and people believed her and followed her, and they became the Audrianites. And, and, and the church had to gather and explain why Jesus is not an alien from outer space. And yet Audrey would be forever marked with her heresy. Would be kind of funny if that happened, but it's, I just pick on Audrey because for some reason you just caught my eye. I'm sorry. Audrey is not, Audrey's not a heretic. Um, but I do think it would be fun if that stuck around. It would be easy and it would sort of be a deterrent, I think, as well. Uh, but regardless... The nature of Christ is a divine mystery. And I only point all that out for you to understand that these are not easy things to wrestle through. They are not clear and simple on the surface. The church has wrestled with them for hundreds of years. And it stretches the human capacity and intellect to its sort of boundaries to sort of grasp how it is that Christ could be dual nature, that he could be both one at the same time human in the fullest sense of humanity and also divine. And yet, that's what we find in the text of Scripture that is taught from beginning to end. And in our text this morning, we see this reality sort of jump off the page to us because we find that even at an early, ripe old age of 12 years old, Jesus has some sense of his own nature, that he is more than just a little boy, that he is, in fact, the Son of God. And yet we find at the same time that like any other human being, he grew and he developed and he matured. Now, we know very little about Jesus' childhood. If you've read through the Gospels, you know that. It doesn't record for us, they don't record for us, much information about Jesus' childhood. We have information about his birth. Matthew and Luke both record uh, many of the events surrounding his birth. And, and Matthew records for us an event that took place about two years later and the visit of the Magi who come and visit with Jesus and Mary and Joseph a couple years down the road when they're in a house, not in a manger any longer. But from there, we don't have anything. We have nothing until we get to this text that we look at this morning, this account from when he was 12 years old that Luke records for us. This is the only thing that we have between his birth narratives and his adulthood and his ministry is this particular story. I have a theory as to why that is, but I'll come to that in a bit. Um, you may have, just another aside, you may have... Uh, sort of, it may have come across your radar at some point that there are other books that are from the early centuries, second century and on, 
that are sometimes included in some people's Bibles. It's called the Apocrypha. Maybe you grew up in another tradition and you had a Bible that had extra books in it called the Apocrypha. They were tucked in there either at the back or maybe in the middle or, or somewhere else in the book. And, and they were other books that circulated around the time uh, of the early church that purported to be books that uh, were divine in nature and should be uh, held in the same regard as the, the, the books that now make up the canon of Scripture. And some of those things still pop up from time to time in history. And, and because people are largely ignorant of their church history, uh, these things are often presented by modern people as something new in order to try and undercut Christianity. Uh, but many of these books, a couple of them in particular, uh, um, try to fill in the gaps between what we read of Jesus at 12 years old and adulthood, and even from his birth to 12 years old. They try to sort of fill in some of the gaps of his childhood and tell stories about what he was like as a kid. Now, I'll, I'll note for you that these books, by and large, all have uncertain origins. They're very difficult to date, quite often very difficult to even uh, identify where they came from or who wrote them and so on and so forth. But regardless, their content is strange and completely out of sync with what we have in the biblical uh, gospels, but I just bring it out to you because somebody may pop this up in front of you someday and try to confuse you with it. There was one in particular called the Infancy Narrative or the Infancy Gospel of Thomas, sometimes shortened to the Gospel of Thomas, and it has all of these stories about Jesus' childhood that are supposed stories of his childhood. It includes all sorts of wild things. It, it says, uh, tells us things like uh, even in the cradle Jesus could talk and he proclaimed to Mary while in the in the cradle that he was the Son of God and in another event, a man is turned into a mule by a sorcerer, and uh, the man's sisters tell Mary, who puts the baby Jesus on the back of the mule, and all of a sudden, he comes back into a man. Another story in the infancy gospel of Thomas tells us that there was a, a leprous woman who was healed by bathing in Jesus' bath water. Jesus plays hide-and-seek with some boys and some women throw a couple of the boys in a furnace. But Jesus transforms them into baby goats. He turns the children into kids. You'll get that at lunch. I'm sorry. Yeah, I know. It's terrible. I'm just trying to make sure you're awake with me this morning. But Jesus miraculously miraculously turns them back into humans and they're unharmed by the fire. In another case, Simon the Canaanite is a little boy, is bitten by a, a snake and Jesus causes the serpent, he gives him a, a good talking to and causes him to go back and suck his venom out after which he explodes and Simon is cured. Now, these are the kinds of things that you find in the infancy narrative or the infancy gospel of Thomas and some of these apocryphal books. I only point them out to you because they still pop up from time to time in pop culture and you should be aware that they exist and you should be aware that they are false, they're not true. In, any, in every such way, they, they, they undercut the true nature of Jesus. Jesus was not a prankster who did stupid and silly things like that as a child. He was not a miracle worker kid who went around uh, making snakes explode and such things. He wasn't such things. Now, the truth is, Jesus, his childhood was a completely normal human childhood. I, I suspect if you had been him and his family early in his life, you probably would have never known that he was anyone other than Jesus, the son of Mary and Joseph, another family in Nazareth that grew up in a small rural town. There was nothing that was particularly noteworthy about his childhood or God would have chosen to, re, to, to record that for us to know and to understand. 
at least in relation to his, his true nature and understanding his nature. The one thing we know about his nature and his childhood is that whatever it looked like and whatever he did, he did it without sin. That's the one thing we know, that he never sinned. That somehow he grew and developed as a human child and he did so without sinning. But Luke does record for us this one event. And it begs the question for us, why does Luke record this event? If we have no other information, why do we have this story? Why did Luke think it was that important? I think that's a good question and I'm glad you asked it. I've already tipped my hat as to why I think it's there. I think it's there because Luke is writing to a man, Theophilus, who is wrestling with doubts about his faith. And Luke wants to help him understand that Jesus is indeed God in human flesh who died for his sins. And that that wasn't just something that his followers made up after his death to sort of make a paint a fanciful picture of his life, that it was in fact something he knew early on and it came out of his own mouth even as a child. And so here Luke records this for Theophilus and us. And so let's walk through the narrative a bit. We're told in the, in the first part here <clears throat> that his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of the Passover. And he was 12, and they went up according to the custom. Now, between verses 39 and 41, 12 years of time have elapsed. If you were to look back in your Bible to verse 39, the account that we looked at last week, Simeon and Anna, and Simeon's song, and all of that, we have a sort of a, a one-sentence summary, and then 12 years of time have elapsed. The, ta- the family's gone back to Nazareth. They've grown up together for over uh, a decade, and we know nothing of the time uh, during that period. But we do know is now Jesus is 12 years old, and he's a normal 12-year-old Jewish boy, at least by all appearances. It's a very important age at 12 years old for a young Jewish boy. It's the last year uh, being sort of regarded as a child when a, a Jewish boy turns 13. It's at the age of 13 that he becomes a, a son of the covenant or a bar mitzvah. Maybe you've heard that phrase before. That's the age at which he becomes accountable to the law. He becomes accountable to observing the law as a man, and he becomes a a full member of the Jewish synagogue at the age of 13. And and so here as a 12-year-old boy, Jesus is just on the edge of that, and this would have been his last opportunity to travel with his family to the feast. And you know it would have been a clear instructional time for Joseph with his son, um, you know, sort of helping him to know and to understand all of the rituals and the ceremonies and all the things that he's going to know because in short order, as a 13-year-old, he's going to be a young man and he's going to need to know all of these things that he might be a good Jewish boy and observe them out of piety and faith in God. And so this is what's going on. Jesus' family is heading to Jerusalem and they're heading there for the feast of the Passover. It wasn't an easy and quick trip. It was about an 80-mile journey. You could just hop in your uh, Honda minivan and throw everybody in the back and bust that out in an hour if you went over the speed limit. You had to go slow and by foot or by horse or camel or some such thing. 80 miles, difficult journey, three to four days of time to make the trip. And so this is what the family has engaged in. And they're going, we're told, for the Feast of Passover, one of the three major annual feasts. Passover kicked off a week-long celebration of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Sometimes the whole thing is just called the Passover Feast. And it was required that the Jewish men were to go to the, to the feast, to the Passover. 
And this must have been just an, an absolutely wonderful experience for little Jesus. Can you imagine as a, as a, as a young boy, a 12-year-old that's grown up sort of in a rural village out in the middle of sort of nowhere, having the opportunity to go to the big city? Jerusalem would have been teeming with up to 200,000 200, people for Passover. There would have been people everywhere. There would have been animals everywhere that were going to their soon demise, and there would have been all sorts of activity going on in the city. It would have been, it would have been just alive with life and people and activities and things. Uh, totally uh, alien to his normal way of life in Nazareth. And so you must know that it would have, was a special occasion for, for Jesus like it was for any other Jewish children who lived in a rural setting. Now a couple of quick notes here. Only Jewish men were required to attend the feast. So Joseph feasibly could have gone by himself, but what we see here, we're told that, that Joseph doesn't go by himself, that he takes the whole family, and he doesn't do that occasionally. This has been their family tradition annually, right? So it tells us something about this family and these parents and how they're raising their son, right? They want him to, to, to be at worship. They want him to observe what goes on in the celebration of the feast and in the worship of God. He isn't left at home, he's taken along with them for the ride that he might observe and that he might learn how to worship with God's people. And so this family is a pious family. They are a godly family. And they take this, this matter seriously in their lives. They were serious about exposing Jesus uh, to his faith. And the other thing that's noteworthy is that Jesus' family stays for the whole feast. Uh, the, the law required that you come, but you didn't have to stay. You could just go to the one-day Passover and then head back home if you were too busy and had other things. But here Jesus' family stays the whole time. It just tells us that they're faithful Jewish families. They were godly people. And so they're going up for this event, and they go there, and presumably everything takes place like a normal Passover. They celebrate the feast for a week, and then everybody packs up and begins to head home. We're told here in the next part of the text, and when the feast ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, and his parents didn't know it. Now, I, Christmas 2010, or Christmas Eve 2010, is a date that I remember very vividly. Um, I remember it very vividly because we were having a Christmas Eve service at church on that particular Sunday, or that particular Christmas Eve evening. What did I say? Oh, I'm corrected. It was not exactly Christmas Eve. It was another Christmas event relative to that. Regardless, there were people and there were things going on. There was music. I talked about something related to the birth of Jesus. I don't recall that part. What I do recall is after the event was over, it was in a different location from this one. Uh, we were milling about cleaning up and everybody was milling about doing the, the fellowshipping kinds of things you did before COVID came and hugging one another and talking up close and doing all that stuff. And at some point, uh, I realized that I thought, Aiden, who was two at the time, was with Danielle. She thought he was with her brother. He thought he was with someone else. And after tracking through all of that, we all realized that nobody had him. And that sense of panic starts to set in, like he's two. And nobody who should have him has him. And he's not in the room. Uh, and at which point, uh, we, we sort of, Danielle puts out an, you know, a, a verbal APB uh, to the group. Aiden is gone. We need to find him immediately. And at which point everybody starts looking for him. And uh, uh, as the 
the, the moments seemed like hours, you know, trying to, to look around for him. Uh, oddly enough, one of our friends, Rhett, uh, maybe some of you know Rhett Harder, he happened to find Aiden. Aiden, as a two-year-old, had slipped out the door, had crossed the side parking lot into a, uh, an area where we had a, a playground at the time, and he was having a big time going up and down the slide. Two years old, had the slide all to himself. It was dark, he didn't care. He was living large uh, until Rhett rescued him and found him and saved his panicking parents from uh, about having a heart attack. But I imagine if you're a parent out there, you've probably had some similar circumstance. Tell me you have, that it's not just us, right? That you, at some point you thought the other hand, they thought, and you realized nobody's got, and you go find them. Well, this is what's going on, and, and you can empathize with this. I mean, you can, you can relate to what Mary and Joseph are dealing with here. I mean, uh, and, and it's even pretty easy to, to conceive of how this happened. In their context, you know, you've got a, a three- or four-day trip, 80 miles, and people traveled in large caravans. Not the Dodge version, but like real caravans. And in the caravan, the women would walk in the front, the men largely walked in the back. And if you had little boys of 12 years old, they could feasibly be in either group as the caravan went about its, its traveling. And it traveled that way for two reasons, for fellowship, because everybody knows a long journey is better when you've got people to, you know, to laugh and, and have a good time with. And, and people are people in every generation, right? So they wanted to, to fellowship with others. But the other thing is safety. There were bad people and highway robbers out there. And if you traveled as a, as a caravan, it was much safer than traveling as a lone family or by yourself. And so they were traveling. And you can easily see how the caravan takes off. And Mary in the front thinks Jesus with Joseph in the back. And Joseph in the back thinks Jesus with Mary in the front. And it turns out that he's not with, with any of them. At some point, Mary and Joseph realize that he's missing, though. It's likely probably in the evening when they are settling down for the night that they realize nobody has him. And what a horrifying realization that is to realize that nobody's got him. Can you imagine the fear and the anxiety and the grief that these parents you know, began to feel as they're running throughout that caravan, you know, doing what we were doing on that not Christmas Eve uh, in 2010, asking everybody, have you seen Jesus? Do you know where Jesus is? We can't find Jesus. He's about this tall. He looks like this. Have you seen him? And nobody, nobody, no. And at some point, they've gone through the whole place, and they realize he's not there. He's not there. And they've walked a full day away from Jerusalem. And so as, uh, as good parents, their minds are spinning with all the, the bad things that could happen. Jesus is left alone in the big city all by himself. You know where your mind's going as a parent, right? All the bad things that could be happening to a little boy in a busy city at a time like that. After a long day of travel, these parents make a beeline back to the city, and we're told that after three days they found him. They found him. He was sitting in, the, in among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. I mean, three days, three days these parents had to deal with all that. Where is he? What's going on? Is he safe? Is he okay? One day traveling out, one day traveling back, and then one day looking out throughout the city. Finally, they get into the temple, and there he is. They find him. He's sitting, and he's listening, and he's asking questions of the teachers. That was the way that Jewish rabbis taught in the time. And at the Passover, all the best rabbis would have been in town teaching. And, and the way they taught was they would stand in the temple courts, and, and students would sit around outside them and and, and 
and they would teach via dialogue. You ask questions and they would answer. And it was a back and forth kind of teaching style. And this is exactly what they locate Jesus doing. He's, he's questioning his teachers. He's asking them. Then he's listening to their answers. And he's asking more. He's soaking up all the theological teaching that he can find, processing all that information. And he's beginning to connect the dots by the power of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is beginning to reveal to him all of these things that he's learning and how they relate to him. And there he is. What we don't know is did he intentionally stay behind when the family left? Or did he just get caught up in the learning and lose track of time? Either way, there he was. And we're told that all were amazed and his at his understanding and his answers. It's amazing. He looked like a 12-year-old boy, but the things he was asking were remarkable. And the questions he was asking had a depth of insight and wisdom about them that were abnormal for his age. He had been thinking deeply about theological truths, and it was remarkable. And people were amazed. You might want to underline that word amazed in your Bibles in the Gospel of Luke because if you write in your Bibles do that um, and which is fine by the way some people just have a quirk about that but Luke is going to say a lot of times that people were amazed when they encountered Jesus it's his way of saying Jesus had a profound impact on everyone he met so and so saw Jesus and they were amazed well he, they were amazed at him at 12 years old And then the, Luke tells us, when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. Now pause for a second, parents, and let's think about how godly, we really are understanding the godliness of Mary and Joseph here, aren't we? I mean, think about what words might have come out of your mouth at that moment when you found him and found that he was okay. I bet it wouldn't have sounded quite that holy. But his parents are astonished. When they saw where he was, when they saw what he was doing, when they heard how he was answering, and when they saw how people were responding to him, they couldn't believe it. And you can just sense Mary's relief and her agitation a bit, right, in, in her questioning. I mean, don't you know, we've been worried sick about you for three days. The question is really designed to make him feel a little guilty, isn't it? And clearly, Jesus had never done anything like this before. And so there's some shock and amazement in her voice. And the questions really are, are, are meant as a, a mild rebuke of Jesus. But there's something going on that she doesn't understand. She doesn't understand that things are changing in her relationship to him. Things are changing. And he's getting ready to let her understand that a little bit. Jesus replies to her and he says, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? At first, as you read that, it might come off or you might have it in your mind as though it comes off a little rude or, or uh, 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 disobedient, not the kindest way to speak to your mom. But I'm convinced that if you could see Jesus and look in his face, you probably would have seen something that, that sort of looked like a genuine sort of confusion. I mean, I think in his mind, he's exactly where he needed to be. In his mind, there was no reason for him to be anywhere else. I mean, in his mind, there was no reason for her to be afraid because of who he was. And yet, here he is faced with the question she's asked. He doesn't understand why she doesn't see things as clearly as he does. After all, 
didn't the angel Gabriel pay her a visit and have a conversation about who he was? Didn't shepherds and magi visit and have some level of explanation as to who he was? Didn't Simeon uh, uh, engage her in the temple and say some things about who he is in relation to the Father? All those things happened. But despite all of that, Mary and Joseph, it's clear, still wrestled with the, the nature of Jesus and his identity and all the implications of that well into his life, even up to his death. And so they don't get it. I mean, she doesn't get it like he's beginning to see it at this point. Mary's fears were understandable, but they were irrational. And Jesus gently points that out to her. He's God in human flesh. There's no reason to be afraid. Phil Riken says this. He says, there were times when she, this is Mary, faced the temptation that all parents face to raise a child more out of fear over what could go wrong than faith in what God would do. Mary's questions came from her fears. And Jesus says, Mom, don't you understand? I must be in my Father's house. Now, this would have been, must have been a shocking statement for Mary and Joseph to hear from their son, to say, I must be in my father's house. I mean, to everyone else around, uh, by, by all appearances, Joseph was his father, and he was standing right there, and that clearly was not his house. It was an astounding thing to say. I had to be in my father's house. Right here, he's claiming that his true father is not Joseph, but is God the Father. And it signals for us here quickly a clear distinction that's taking place between Jesus and his immediate family. He's beginning to understand his relationship with his Father. It's as though he's saying to them, up until this point, I've spent most of my time in your house, but now I'm realizing that this is where I belong, in my father's house. Up until this point, my priority has been to do your will as my parents, but now I'm beginning to understand that the priority of my life has to be doing my father's will. See, things are changing. Things are changing. Jesus is very clearly signaling a change in his own self-perception. He's clearly understanding that he's more than just Mary and Joseph's son, that he is, in fact, the son of God, and that he has to begin to prepare for that mission. Listen, nobody in, in the history of Judaism talked about their relationship to God by calling him my father. You just didn't speak about God that way. It was an audacious thing to say, to speak of God as somehow your personal, intimate father. Uh, throughout the Old Testament, the Jews viewed God as, as corporate father, or the father of all, in the sense of creation. They viewed him as the father of Israel, in the, the, a sort of a national sense, but they would have never referred to God as my personal father. Nobody ever did that in a personal sense, because to do that was a major claim. It was to claim to be one and the same with God the Father. It gets a little lost in our English language. But here Jesus is claiming to be deity. He's claiming to be God in human flesh. 
The Holy Spirit has awakened his understanding and he has some sense for who he is and what he's come to do. And he has a sense for how things are changing, but he has a sense that's very clear that he is the son of God, that he is God in human flesh. Now as a 12 year old boy, everybody's amazed that he says these things. As a grown man in his ministry, when he begins to say these things, they kill him for it. It's the very thing that drove the Jewish leaders out of their minds. You look at John chapter 5, verse 17 and following, but Jesus answered them, my father is working until now and I'm working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. The religious leaders understood that to claim God is your father is to claim equality with the father. You could look in John chapter 10, Matthew chapter 26, again and again, when Jesus says this, my father, he gets the same reaction. They want to kill him every time. In John 10, they pick up stones to stone him. And in his mock trial in Matthew 26, they ultimately do kill him after that. Jesus understood who he was, even as a 12-year-old boy. Which is even more remarkable that the next sentence tells us in verse 51, he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them, and his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. He had this understanding at 12, and yet he obeys his parents, and he goes home, and for another 18 years, he lives in Mary and Joseph's home as a submissive son to his mother and father. And of those years, we don't know anything. But then verse 52, and we'll sort of conclude with this, tells us, and Jesus increased in wisdom, in stature, in favor with God and man. If you look back to verse 40, verse 40 and verse 52 sort of are bookends to this narrative that Luke gives us. They, they say similar things. They both speak of Jesus growing and becoming strong and the favor of God being upon him and being filled with wisdom and such. But now that Luke has made it clear, this, this one slips right in there. Luke has made it clear from the narrative that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is God in human flesh. And now, immediately, in one quick sentence, he reminds us that that's not all he is, though, that he is also complete humanity. In one single summary sentence, he reminds us that Jesus grew up just like any other kid. He grew in stature. That means he grew up physically, just like any other kid grew up physically. He was once a baby, and he required moment-by-moment care. He cried. He burped. He pooped. He did all the things that babies do. He kept his parents from getting any quality sleep for a good long time. Shane and Andrea, you're here somewhere. If you're sleepy, we understand. He nursed, and he was changed and he needed to be cleaned up just like any other baby and he grew into a toddler and he had to be taught to walk and to communicate and to do things and he grows into a little boy and he went out and played with his friends and he went to school and he learned and he learned music or he played sports or whatever Jewish boys did in his day he grew up doing those things he became a teenager imagine that a teenager without sin what does that look like well he was one of those he grew into a young adult, and he, he learned his father's trade. He learned carpentry. He con- contributed to his family. He helped his family make ends meet. There is no indication that physically he developed any different than anyone else. He grew up in stature. Part of Jesus becoming a man was him taking on a true human body. He came to save us in the body. And in order to do that, he took on all the difficulties and all the limitations that come with being a human being and having a human body. 
He grew in wisdom, we're told. That's intellectually. He grew in his understanding and in his application of truth. He had a human mind, just like he had a human body. It wasn't a divine logos. It wasn't an alien from outer space mind like the Audrianites. It was a real human mind that developed over time. He had to learn. He had to grow in his understanding. He had to develop normally. He had a true human mind with true human reason and a human will and human emotions. All of this developed just like it did for me and for you. The only difference is it was unhindered by sin and depravity. But he grew in wisdom. And he grew in favor with man. He learned how to relate to people. He grew in his interpersonal skills, his ability to relate to other people. That is to say he was likable in his interactions with others. He knew how to relate to other people in winsome sort of ways. That's how you grow in favor with men, right? You learn to relate with people in ways that are winsome and good and healthy and kind, and you grow in favor with people. It doesn't, it, it, and you know what that is, right? You know what it is. You know this by experience. Some people are just winsome and likable, aren't they? You know them because you see them in the grocery store and you're drawn to them, right? You want to go see them. You want to go talk to them. You are going to go hear from them. You smile and you engage them and you want to be around them and you walk toward them because you're glad to see them. And some people are just not. They're just not. They don't they haven't grown in favor with you. you. You see them in the grocery store and you think, did they see me or did they not? I think I cut that aisle and I can avoid them altogether. But Jesus was winsome, and he was likable, and, 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 and he grew in favor with men. People were attracted to him all throughout his ministry. Wherever he went, when he spoke, people came to him, and they were drawn to him. Even children were drawn to him. And you know, kids are pretty precarious about that. They're not just drawn to anybody, but they were, they were drawn to Jesus because he grew in favor with men. One of the, my pet peeves about Christian movies that try to portray Jesus is most of them do a really poor job, I think, in my estimation, just my opinion, of portraying this part of Jesus' nature, that he was, that he was winsome and likable, that he, that he was somebody that you'd want to be around. They, they tend to overdo, I think, sort of a view of his divinity and present him as above everybody else in such a way that almost makes him sort of stoic or unemotional or untouchable. And I don't think that that's how he was. I don't think that's why you grow in favor with men. There is a series that's out, that's come out in the last couple of years called The Chosen. Have any of you seen it? It's out on YouTube. Uh, you can find it for free out there. I'd encourage you to take a look at it. Um, I, it's not a perfect movie because there no movie is perfect in its replication of the, of the text of Scripture. God gave us a book, not a film. So to go from book to film, you have to do some level of interpretation. Um, and so you just understand that when you see any film. But in this film, I at least thought that they did a great job of portraying Jesus this way. That they gave him a, a likable personality, a winsomeness about him that was relatable. Uh, that, that sort of reflected him growing in favor with men. Uh, and they did it in a way, I thought, without diminishing his divinity. You, you may have a different opinion if you watch it. Feel free to tell me. Um, I'm interested to hear that. But we see that Jesus was the one who grew in favor with men. And of course, he grew in favor with God. That's just a way to say that he grew spiritually. He grew in his understanding of his relationship to his heavenly father and all the implications of that for his life and his ministry. Jesus was in every sense God. He said it out of his own mouth when he tells his mother, I'm in my father's house. But he was also in every sense a human being who grew up just like you grew up and I grew up. And for us to understand who Jesus really is, and really for us to understand the gospel, we have to know that that's who he was. 
Because in order for him to die and shed his blood and give his life on our behalf, he had to die as a man in the place of men, a sinless man in the place of sinful men. But in order to forgive and to accomplish redemption, he had to do for men what only God could do. He had to be divine. And when we look at Jesus Christ on the cross and we see his bloody hands and we see his bloody feet and we see his destroyed human body, we're fools to think that that's anything other than a human body like yours. He endured the full wrath of God in his flesh for our sins. And he did it that he might die and that he might rise again three days later, destroy death, defeating the grave, rising to new life that men and women like you and like me could look to him and place our faith in him and our trust in him and by repenting of our sins and bowing before him as Lord of our lives that his perfection could be imputed to us and our sin nailed to his cross that our sins might be paid for and his eternal life granted to us that is what it means to be a Christian and it all revolves around a right understanding of who he is I hope you know Jesus. I hope you've thought deeply about who he is. And I hope that you have come to that place in your life where you have repented of your sins and you've looked to the cross where he died in your place and you've submitted your life to him as your Lord and Savior. That you might be able to say, he's my Lord and he's my Savior. He's my Jesus, not just a Jesus external to me, but I've received him as my Lord and Savior. If you haven't, and the Bible says that right now you are in your sins. And you're accountable to the one who made you for those sins. And unless you repent and turn to Jesus Christ, you will stand before God the Father and you'll face judgment for your sins. And the judgment for your sins is an eternal hell apart from God. And there's no reason for anyone in the hearing of my voice to have that fate. Because Jesus Christ, the God who became man to die for you, stands at the doorway of your life right now and he says, repent of your sins trust in me and what I've done for you and I will save your eternal soul I'll wipe the slate clean I'll forgive you I'll make your life brand new I'll transform you into my image, you'll become a part of my family and we'll spend forever together when your life on this earth is done won't you receive him this morning Lord Jesus, you are glorious beyond our comprehension. And we, 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 we read and we meditate on these, these words and we're amazed at who you are. There are times when we sort of get it and there are other times when we think, man, that's, that's more than I can fully understand. And yet your word tells us that that's exactly who you are. We celebrate you, Jesus. We celebrate you. We're glad that you are a human just like us, and because of that, you can relate to us. You know what it's like to feel and experience everything that we feel and experience because you've been there and done that. And we can look to you and find comfort and help and hope when we're hurting and when we're struggling and when life doesn't go the way we expect it to. But we're thankful that you are divine, that you are God of all gods, that you have the power to forgive sin, that you have the power to bring about a new birth and give us eternal life. We worship you. We celebrate you.
Lord, I pray this morning, if there are those with us who have never contemplated these things and understood them, that you would open by the power of your Holy Spirit their eyes to see you for who you are and draw them to yourself that they might be saved. We pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen.